Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Old Tom, the king of spring, Galberry Joe. No matter the name, his call resonates with hunters all across the United States. We're talking about the wild turkey, and this is the Talking Tom Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Daniel and I are here with the first ever guest of the Talking Tom podcast. Now, you, by this time, you've already heard our intro. You, you, you know what the, the gist of this is. And Daniel and I were sitting at a uh, call show down in Webster, and I was severely sunburned because I didn't bring a tent. He was smart enough, having gone to several shows, to bring a tent. And we're sitting there talking about, you know, what turkey season is going to be, what this podcast series is going to be like, because Chase is going to be on here, but Daniel's also going to be on here. And uh, we're talking about how we wanted to really crank some really unique content and really hit it from an arena that, and a, and a, and a perspective that people don't normally do. And the very first person at the top of that list was today's, tonight's guest. Um, I am thrilled because this fella is running what I think is the best outdoor podcast out there right now, the Wild Turkey Science Podcast. We've got the one and only Marcus Lashley. Um, I am I'm happy to say that we picked the guy that uh, didn't DNA uh, human fecal matter. So, <laughs> yeah, you can't start me out like that. I, I might not recover, guys. No, I, I really appreciate y'all inviting me on the show and, and uh, appreciate all the compliments. I don't know that they're deserved, but I appreciate them nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh i'm a i'm a turkey fiend daniel's a turkey fiend we're of that uh that mindset that we're deer hunting and bass fishing and red fishing just to pass time between turkey seasons and uh i'd give up a, an entire deer season to have an extra week tacked on and a couple extra tags for turkey and so um we're thrilled to have you on here and and the kind of tonight's goal is to kind of do a state of the union for turkeys mm-hmm. in florida uh we're in this weird space, you know, way better than anybody else, what I'm about to say and, and the familiarity with it. We're in this weird space where the wild turkey is this oddly contentious topic from pop, from population, you know, regulations. How do we go about doing mm-hmm. these different things? And in Florida, it feels like nothing. I'm not going to say that nothing's happening, but it feels like everybody else is kind of running around with their hair on fire and we're just down mm-hmm. there shooting birds, having a good time and there's nothing wrong. And <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know if that's true. Um, but I've witnessed some things here that tell me that maybe we're in a good place, but I don't want to speculate. I want to leave it to the fellows yeah. who are actually, you know, doing the thing. So right off the rip, I'm just going to ask you one question. 
Mm-hmm. Are we in a good place in the state of Florida when it comes to turkeys? Well, that, that's a great question. And I think the, the best answer to that is if you look at data that's been collected by the, the uh, commission, uh, there we do not have the same indicators in Florida generally that have been brought brought to our attention in other places. So you're seeing, you know, you're you kind of hit the nail on the head in a really funny way. Uh, you know, we're seeing these changes in other places, and they're trying to respond uh, at the state level with a lever that they have at their disposal. And they don't have, in some cases, you don't have the luxury to wait on data. You know, you're kind of making some changes uh, based on information we have right now. And then sometimes you have to collect data as that goes and figure out and evaluate. Uh, And in Florida in general, like if you look at the the pulp per hen data at the statewide level, we're not seeing the same symptoms generally. Uh, now, there's plenty of places in the state where people feel like they're not seeing as many turkeys and they're declining. And there are other places that think they're booming. I think there's, you know, there's some of that going on uh, throughout the state. But if you look at it from that broader scale, uh, you know, our poult for hen data is indicating that we've been relatively stable and and uh, the hunter harvest as well. So, uh, but the, you know, the other thing that you said that, that I'll, kind of uh curtail a little bit because it's not always obvious to the public what is going on the state agency they should be commended for this uh they're working with me uh at the university of florida to commission some research and they have actually before i got here and uh the previous coordinator had commissioned work in northern florida and in the panhandle in a step before the project that we've just launched now in South Florida uh, to do exactly what, you know, what we're talking about here is to evaluate the situation. What does the productivity look like? You know, uh, how should that influence our opportunity? And they are commissioning research to evaluate those questions, get the best data that we can gather to make decisions based on science, you know, which is, it's a luxury to be able to do that, but it's also a really important part of the process. And I think they really should be commended for that uh, because they're really trying to do that. Another state that's doing a similar approach is Mississippi uh, where they commissioned, you know, a a big project to evaluate things and try to form, uh, you know, what, uh, regulations and things like that around that data so you know that it seems like sometimes nothing's happening but what they're really doing is trying to gather the data that they need to make informed decisions and and you know i'm uh, from the university side i'm heading up that research in south florida now so it's funny you say that because um so I, full disclosure i guess i should have led with this i'm this is only my my fourth real turkey season. I am of that COVID boom of turkey hunters. Like you gave me an opportunity I didn't have before. And mm-hmm. um, one of the first books I read was Gene Nunnery's The Old Pro. And he was talking about yes. old, old pros don't shoot their their full tags. And I'm still in this mindset of I want to shoot them. I, 
I, I shouldn't feel bad about it, but last year I started wondering, should I feel bad about shooting these, yeah. these two birds? So what I gathered from your answer is I should just go ahead and tag out and not worry about it because we got plenty of birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it, that's an interesting, interesting <laughs> perspective. I, I, I don't think, you know, you, you should, uh, do what's legal for you to do it and sure. you shouldn't feel bad about that. I, I like killing two birds too. Um, <laughs> But the reality, you know, a lot of people want to know, well, why don't we, re- if there are problems, why not just re- reduce bag limit? Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is most people don't shoot all of their bag limit anyway. So that may not be the most effective way to decrease harvest, even if we needed to, uh, because most people don't use most of, I don't remember what the proportions are in this state. I'd be speaking out of turn on that. But, you know, if you look at that at a broad scale, a lot of hunters don't harvest any. Some harvest one and very few harvest more than one. So, you know, that's the general trend. And But I hear that quite often from people. It's like, well, why don't we just reduce the bag limit? And first of all, we're trying to collect data to see if that's even, is, is there too much harvest? Like, you got to go that step first. But the other thing is uh, reducing the bag limit might not actually reduce harvest. So we're not going to go to below one. Right. So uh, we're not going to preferentially sell licenses to only some people. So, uh, you know, there are other ways, I guess, on public land through quotas or or things that you might reduce it. But uh, it's not necessarily intuitive, I guess, to people that even something that seems simple like that can be a little more complex. Yeah, I it it was funny. We were talking about that in a a private group. I've got a couple of little turkey nuts and we were talking about the the bag limits and georgia went from three to two and mm-hmm. um and I, and we were arguing about whether or not that was going to be efficient because of that exact reason but one of the things yeah. we did do that i thought was kind of neat is you can only shoot one bird per wma yeah and i was like that makes sense because it, you know i've got a honey hole i could go and tag out in every year but i try and spread the wealth and or the hate mm-hmm. look at it evenly <laughs> out there um if you make somebody leave that honey hole, well, then they're not, you know, just taking from that, that limited resource. So over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. So Daniel. Yeah. There, there definitely are some places, particularly public land places uh, where I think, you know, the pressure on those places is far different, you know, it's far higher than in, in other places. And I'm not even just talking about in Florida. I'm just talking about in general. Uh, you know, no, that, that's something that, that I think is reasonable to take a look at, especially if you're in a place where the populations seem to that have indicators that they're declining, you know, regulating harvest in a situation where you have 75 or 80% of the birds being harvested in the first week of season, mm-hmm. we probably need to figure out a way to curtail that pressure. Like that, you know, that's an extreme case, uh, so it's, it's interesting you bring up the, you know, on WMAs that that is something that I think is a pretty reasonable approach is to try to figure out how to spread that pressure out uh, so that you don't put so much on it, especially in a population that seems to be declining, uh, which is various places across the South. Is that is that population decline without, you know, broadening the conversation too far? Is that a. Uh, a witnessed population decline or a, a hunter perspective reported 
yeah, is it scientific it, or so, is it just perspective, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> well, we have multiple forms of data and all of those data sets have limitations. Uh, you know, we can't have perfect measurement, but we have multiple indicators in some places that, that indicate that the population uh, at a broad scale, often statewide scale, is declining. So that might be poult for hen ratios uh, that are reported. They, they get collected in different ways in different places. Here, we send out a mailer, the FWC does, uh, you know, people will get it. And basically, you have the opportunity to report, report anytime that you see poults with a hen. Mm-hmm. If you're out there listening to this, do that. That is giving them data that they need to make informed decisions. Uh, sometimes it's based on hunter harvest information. So we can, especially if we know how much hunter effort there is, we can correct the har- correct the hunter harvest for the amount of effort. And that gives you an indicator of how, how hard it is for people to kill a turkey. And that's a pretty good indicator of how the population is trending. So, you know, when you put those multiple data sources together like that, uh, you start to get a better picture of what the true population trajectory looks like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I'm when I'm referring to a decline, I, that's what I mean is we have data from multiple sources that indicate uh, that there's a decline. Is there you, a, is it? Go ahead, buddy. I was going to say, you've mentioned the, uh, the pulp for hen um, several times. And for the listeners that don't know, can you explain a little bit about what the pulp for hen survival means and, and how they um, go on to reproduce and, and to do that again and to, to create uh, more turkeys for us? And then even discuss a little bit about um, how the hens are being bred and how they incubate differently or if they do incubate um, at different times throughout the regions of Florida. Okay. Yeah. Well, let, let's unpack that. So when I say poult for hen, I just mean uh, how many individuals did a hen hatch from eggs? And uh, that poult would be basically before, well, it go all the way into the fall, but the really critical time would be pre-flight. So the our bottleneck, if you will, on... Uh, productivity seems to be in about the first 10 to 14 days of life after they've hatched. Wow. So uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, they're two inches tall. You know, they're just like they're little snacks for everything. (laughs) They, but even then, you know, people want to point the finger at predators. They can't thermoregulate either. So they're pre-flight. They can't thermoregulate, so they're they're you know they're they're really vulnerable then. And a lot of them, uh, and this is one thing that gets kind of fuzzy. A lot of poults are going to die. It's just you're choosing. You can just choose which factor is going to be. So like if you don't have predators, they just die of exposure instead, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I focus a lot of my work on habitat improvement, particularly for poult rearing. Because this, that is what I see missing from the majority of the landscape in multiple states. I can, you know, drove all the way up to the convention and I see virtually no poult rearing cover on the landscape. 
And the reason I focus a lot on that is because good poult rearing cover deals with compensatory sources of mortality simultaneously. And I know that, you know, I'm throwing out a, a word that may not be intuitive to you. Essentially, if you have good, high-quality poult rearing cover, it promotes multiple aspects of the life that will kill that poult that's super vulnerable. So that high-quality cover not only makes it harder for a predator to find, it also supports a range of temperature that doesn't get too cold or too hot to kill it. It also supports really high insect production. And the poult is basically eating 100% insects. It needs a it needs a really high protein diet so that it can grow really fast, so that it grows feathers and can thermoregulate, and more importantly, probably even fly. So we're trying to get them through that that period as fast as possible. We want them to grow really fast so they can thermoregulate and fly. And the reality of the situation is across much of the South. We've had three studies. None of those are in Florida. Uh, three studies now that have just recently come out, and all three of them showed that nesting and brooding cover was single-digit proportion of the landscape. So that's that's where the bottleneck generally is. That's crazy. when you when you do a poult to hen ratio, those little guys that are two inches tall, you would never see them, right? So you see the FWC survey come out and you wouldn't actually see poults until they've already moved through that gauntlet. They're, you know, that's when they get big enough. So by that time, their survival probability increases substantially. So when you report that poult to hen ratio, you're essentially, you see a hen out in the field and it has a bunch of smaller turkeys uh, standing around it. Those are the poults, and maybe, you know, by the time you see them easily, they may be 6, 8, 12 inches tall. In uh, that ratio gives a much better indicator of productivity because they essentially made it through the gauntlet already, and their survival is going to be relatively high compared to what it would have been in the first couple weeks of life. So did that? I feel like you had some other questions about the, the poult to hen. Was there something else on that? Yeah, what I, the I guess the follow up to that is is when are, and if are they being bred and incubating at different times throughout the state, um, South Florida versus all the way up to the you know the Alabama Georgia Florida line? Um, yeah, is that playing a an, a role in the survival of the of the poults and and when we're starting our seasons and i know that's a big yeah. um, debate and and we've had the i think the tennessee study the mississippi study that mm-hmm. was recently talked about um maybe just briefly because i know you've talked about that at length mm-hmm. and at nauseum. um if you just want to give us an update kind of focused on florida as far as how sure. it divides it up yeah so uh, as you the folks that are hunting in Florida know we have kind of a dividing line and a difference in, in season timing based on that. And that, that originally came from data that was collected a long time ago uh, on the nesting chronology of turkeys and when gobbling uh, was happening. Our study that we've just launched this season, uh, we are revisiting that to look at what the 
you know, basically when the nesting is occurring and when the breeding is occurring. Uh, we also have gobbling meters out across the landscape looking at when turkeys are gobbling. Uh, we've already, I, I wasn't a part of it, but previously they did a similar study in the panhandle. So just, you know, within the last several years. Um, <clears throat> so uh, based on that pre the previous information from decades ago, the nesting down in, in southern Florida below that line, you know, that, that was initiating even in early March, I think, uh, was when we were starting to see some of the first nests. Uh, that's, that's later as you move up in the state, and it may be a few weeks later even up in the northern part of the state. Uh, the what you were talking about with the Mississippi and the Tennessee studies, those studies were designed specifically where they manipulated the timing of hunting relative to that breeding. And uh, they, the Mississippi study, they manipulated the timing of hunting. They moved it back a few weeks uh, such that I think it was – one or two weeks before the peak in, in uh, incubation. And the reason they did that was to try to determine, there's one prevailing hypothesis right now, which is why you're seeing a lot of season dates move in these other states, uh, that we might be killing gobblers before they've gotten the majority of the breeding done, and that could disrupt nesting. Uh, Mississippi moved theirs back on WMAs. Tennessee employed a similar study where they were measuring productivity in response to moving the season date experimentally in county at the county level in multiple counties. Up till now, in both of those studies, they tracked various metrics of productivity to see if we see a population response of the turkeys to that manipulation. And currently, neither study has observed a response. So, uh, in Florida, the we have a similar chronology, to, especially to Mississippi, in terms of uh, the timing of the hunting season relative to the reproduction in the northern part of the state. And I think it's probably more similar uh, to some of the other states that are a little bit later in the southern part of the state. So, but again, that that's a hypothesis, and there's some reasonable data out there that suggests that's plausible, but the experimental manipulation so far that I'm aware of have not demonstrated that that corrects, uh, you know, the, the, uh, popu any population, uh, level effects. So, but again, in Florida, we don't even have the indicators currently suggesting that there is a problem. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's, uh, that's good for us, you know, <laughs> Yeah, so, absolutely. But that's that's what those experiments were done for. That's why they're commissioned in those states was because they're seeing some indicators that there's a problem with turkey populations. And they're basically testing that hypothesis to see if they delay season dates, will it result in a correction in that population trajectory? And uh, it's just so far that's that doesn't seem to be the answer. 
This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Wife just brought me the uh, baby monitor charger, so <laughs> missing, Chase, missing Chase's tail is just uh, save the day so I can keep going. <laughs> yeah. You know, is it, can we, can we derive from that data also when our likelihood of being able to kill a Tom might increase as well. If we, if we can kind of hone in on when that breeding date peak is, is that, is that something that hunters can kind of use like a rut type situation? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, yeah, I think that, I think you could. Yeah. Um, so we, we'll have a pretty good handle on when the majority of gobbling is going on. And we will have a very good handle on when a lot of hens are going to nest. And when you intersect those two things, you have a lot of hens on the nest and a lot of gobblers that are still fired up. It's probably a good time to be on one. Do I, uh, do I need to put in a foyer request with you to release <laughs> when that intersection is? Hey, then... Yeah, I'm, I'm an open <laughs> book, man. It'll be on the podcast. We'll be sharing it all over the place we publish the data in yeah. journals it'll be out there that might the, be the, one the, time uh, the commission <laughs> the commission will have it it'll be open on the, the internet like i think you already have access to some of that information from the north florida project really i i want to probably end up getting with you because i'm a bit of a geek and i so I, was, <laughs> I was two classes away from a coastal ecology major before i switched to accounting and so i read a lot of those research papers and i, I got really comfortable digging into that and seeing what's going yeah. on and so yeah that's uh, good i i actually have a book of i've got two research bulletins from fwc on turkey hunting that i found on ebay and oh nice they're super old studies i don't even know how they would apply but just like hearing the methodology and what they were just trying to witness was just, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And you know, one of the, uh, love at Williams was one of the, the icons of Turkey research who started, uh, down here in Florida. So it's pretty cool that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the book. <laughs> 
Yep. Yeah, actually, uh, it was a really special thing for me. I can't, I think it may have, it's one of his family members. One of them gave me a signed copy. And I was just blown away. Absolutely blown away. Didn't sleep for weeks. You just, you just held that book and tried to figure out what to do with it, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) I knew I needed to read it. That was amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, just a, yeah, a great, uh, great turkey researcher, historic, yeah, right here in Florida. You, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I don't know, and, and this is probably a question I need to call Tony Young and see see if he can have some 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 swing with this. But there ought to be. It sounds like a hotline to be able to report those hens with poults because if you're if you live mm-hmm. and breathe on WMAs, riding quads or, or hunting pigs or just chasing those seasons, you come into contact with just so much. Yeah, um, that would be a really good way to maybe kind of uh, have an uptick in those reports. Um, yeah, that, that might be no, something I, we spearhead. I think you're right, and you know these kinds of things, like what you guys are doing, what I'm trying to do, you know, increasing awareness. Like you know, you get you get stuff from these places, and you don't know what it's for, and they're asking you to to do something like that. And you know, some people take it like they're trying to key in on your honey hole or something. It but you know that data is is meant for us to to make sustainable decisions for the constituents, which are the turkey hunters. Mm-hmm. You know they they're trying to make sure that things are going well, and um, you know that's a, that's a key aspect of the data. And I you know I haven't been here very long, but I've already established a working relationship with a lot of the turkey team with FWC, and we you know we use those data to, you know, try to look at status of populations and, and, uh, you know, it's just such an important source and it's a way that everybody out there can get involved and help. And that's one thing that I hope that our audience takes away from it is that you guys are in our corner and y'all are fighting for us because y'all love the turkey. Um, y'all are the ones out there. So I hope that, that everyone out there realizes that, you know, when we're filling out these surveys and when we're getting questions and they really want good, honest feedback so that we yeah, can make yeah. good decisions going forward so that Florida can stay awesome um, and that we can continue to have a, a stable um, turkey population going forward so that we can continue to, to hunt um, the way we do and and uh, that hunter satisfaction will, will still stay elevated throughout this process. Yeah, that, that is a key aspect of what the state is doing. And, I mean, hey, I, I cannot wait to get out in the woods after turkeys. I'm obsessed <laughs> with turkeys. Like, I'm right there. I'm a hunter. I was a hunter before I was a, a researcher and a biologist, and I'll be a hunter after it. You know, that that really is true. But in turkey research, all the turkey researchers – you know, we're all hunters. We're all in this because we love turkeys. And, and uh, you know, I can't say that enough. I cannot wait. This year, uh, I have a an invite to take my, my daughter on her first turkey hunt. I cannot wow. wait to do that. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I, you know, I want to pass on the love for it. Yeah. I am yeah. envious of you. I've got a two-year-old that's been fighting me uh, the past couple of days <laughs> and sleeping. And uh, yeah. I am 
I've got like all these cool memories with my dad and I'm the nostalgic kind. I'm the guy that just sits there drinking a cup of coffee in the morning on a crisp morning. And I'm like, I just remember doing X with my dad. And Mm -hmm. if I get a turkey call out and I yelp, my son will run at age two through numerous brick walls and whatever rough substance is in front of him to get (laughs) to me. And he just wants to be there. And the idea that we're going to be able to turkey hunt in the relative near future, because those date years are going to fly by. Dude, that just like gets me so choked up. So I am yeah. fifty shades of, of envious of you right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this I took her deer hunting. Uh, when was it? I guess this past December, and we got up in a stand, and the deer, a, a nice buck came out right in front of us. You know, in the wide open and broad daylight, pranced around, and I mean, it just it just ate her up. So I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking the turkeys are, you know, that's really going to get her fired up. That's cool. Can't wait. (laughs) Good luck keeping her still. Yeah. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's not going to work very well. (laughs) So kind of shifting gears a little bit, uh, Florida has unique challenges. Um, Development's a huge challenge, I am Mm -hmm. certain. The fact that we even have a a, a stable population uh, is kind of bewildering to me. Um, or, or indicators that there's a stable population. Um, there's no shortage of, of, of external threats to the wild turkey. Can you kind of touch on what some of those might be as it pertains to Florida? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so I, I, one of the main problems, especially when you get down in, into Osceola range, is that it's functional, functioning sort of like an island. In Peninsular Florida, uh, you know, it's just that, that's a limitation for the population. And, you know, I think personally, I think that is one of the, the key aspects. And then development is definitely another big threat. You know, human population in general. Uh, the, the, Upside of that is Florida is pretty special in several ways. If you look in the southeast, Florida is an outlier in public land ownership that is not going to be developed. That That is a huge win for turkeys. We also have a big effort, uh, and there are a lot of private landowners and public lands involved in the effort to have the Florida Wallet Corridor mm-hmm. along the spine. And that also is a big win for turkeys. Can you and talk about that a little bit? I don't think people yeah. know about that. Yeah. So the original, well, I don't know the history of it and I wasn't involved in it, but uh, there was originally, from what I can understand, a big effort trying to establish a corridor essentially from the Everglades all the way up to Georgia and then across the Panhandle all the way to Alabama. And it's relatively intact, unbelievably. You know, when it from as someone who didn't grow up in Florida, that that you know, looking at Florida from the outside, I didn't even know that was such a like that there was so much open space that was undeveloped in Florida, so much natural space. It was really awesome uh, coming here and getting to be, you know, getting to see that and be a part of it. Uh, so basically, this huge effort was was originally, from what I can understand, an effort to conserve the Florida panther. And what 
I think a lot of people don't realize is how much space, because that species needs so much space and so much connectivity, that effort has established a lot of, of uh, conservation easements and, and uh, public land and things as part of that corridor that have basically ensured that it will remain wild space. Wow. And that's a pretty cool thing. That is super rare. And I think that is one huge plus for, for wild turkeys and, and a bunch of other species. Uh, you know, we also, I didn't realize there were so many large landowners. I mean, some, some landowners are enormous in Southern Florida. You know, the, the, uh, a lot of the agriculture that we have in the state with, with, uh, grazing and, and, uh, you know, some of the other things, some of that agriculture is still pretty conducive for turkey populations, which is nice. That's not the case with all crops in all places. Uh, so I think, you know, we have several things going for us that are kind of offsetting the, the unusual situation of sort of being an island and having the really high development pressure along the edges of the island, really. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I think, you know, that's one thing to be proud of as a Floridian is that, is that, you know, there's so much public access and there's mm-hmm. so much protected land, whether it's on private land or public land. And a lot of those are, you know, there's big efforts to keep those contiguous. And I think that is a, a huge thing for turkeys. The wow. other the the other threat, I, I, I kind of got onto the positive note and forgot about the threats. I think another big threat is, I don't want to completely say it's just fire suppression, but that's a big part of it as, uh, you know, things grow very fast in Florida and most of the plant communities, in, at least in the uplands and some of the wetlands are fire dependent communities or at least heavily fire influenced. And uh, the other threat, I think, to turkeys is the lack of fire. But Florida is also the fire capital of the world. We set more prescribed fire per capita in Florida than anywhere else on the planet. So we're also winning on that front. And, you know, if you hear quail commonly on public land or private land, that's one of the reasons. That's not very common in many places. You don't hear wild quail in many places anymore. And here we still have so much fire. Uh, you know, that that's a real win. But fire, uh, another thing about that is quail are often a pretty good indicator of how good things are going to be productivity-wise for turkeys because mm-hmm. what, what the quail, quail are kind of like a canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Uh, what, what quail do really well in is things that produce lots of pulse. Mm-hmm. That, that's what the, you know, they have a lot of overlap similarity in their habitat needs for that pulp rearing stage that we were talking about earlier quail need that same thing and and you you know quail will be the first to go essentially when things are when you're starting to get symptoms of of uh problems from a habitat standpoint so uh you know the lack of fire i think is a threat and we need to remember how important fire is in these systems and as you know turkeys they, they're not the firebird because uh, Stoddard called the quail the firebird before 
we got to turkeys, but they are number two in line. They, uh, they're definitely, you know, they definitely benefit from fire. And in particular that the nesting and poult rearing cover that comes with, with, uh, with fire is pretty important and critical in Florida. Another, uh, part of that same thing is a lot of the way some, some of the grazing practices, especially the patch burn grazing type practices that, that are, uh, common in some places in the state promote a lot of structure that that is conducive for turkeys so and we we really have a lot of good things going for us and that may be one of the reasons why we aren't seeing some of these symptoms that we're seeing elsewhere uh you know so we'll end that on a positive note but i I think (laughs) those are the you know basically the habitat part of it is the threat but we have a lot of things going for us in the state that are really helping. So along those lines, um, you're right. So I grew up in Southeast Georgia and New Orleans and public lands <laughs> were, were kind of there. Um, yeah. But, but they weren't really abundant. And I remember when they broke shovel on a road into a new place on the Ultima Hall river basin that they were making a WMA. And I remember growing up and now I was insanely fortunate. I grew up on 2000 acres. I could do whatever it is I wanted to. It, mm. was, it was just a, a paradise. Unlike anything. I think a lot of people have the, the fortune of growing up on. So I didn't really have public land. I, I kind of did cause it was a hunting club and it was all treated mm. that way. But I remember trying to punch out and hunt turkeys because where we were, it was a NWTF conservation area. And so we got grant funding to not hunt turkeys. It was part of that early movement for re uh, reentering turkeys. And mm-hmm. so we would go to public land. We had 1200 acres and everybody else in that, in that region had that same 1200 acres. And I went back the other day and I'm on, I'm on Spartan forge and I'm looking at all the public land. I'm like, what in the hell is all this? I'm like, what is all this? I was like, is this a new, like, is this a land access? And my buddy's like, no, dude, the state of Georgia's hurling money at Mm -hmm. public land left and right. And they've locked in this entire river basin permanently as a conservation easement. But I remember moving to Tallahassee and pulling up the public lands map and being like, I've got 1.5 million acres of public land around me. What is going on? Like, how Mm -hmm. am I supposed to even, (laughs) like, I can't scratch the surface on this, you know? Um but one yeah, of the things I, I've noticed is there's truly like we do a lot of burning now, but I moved here in 2015. I didn't see very much burning. Is that a shift? I guess I'm asking you to comment on something that maybe you don't have a direct influence on, but is the state moving towards even more fire? Because I kind of hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there are many organizations that are in strong support and advocating for more and more fire. Uh, the, the state wildlife agency is certainly one of those that one of the things, one of the reasons the university of Florida was interested in me, uh, bringing me to the university is because I have, they wanted to bring someone who specialized in game species, someone specialized in habitat management and someone who worked with prescribed fire because it's so important in the state and that just happened to be exactly what I do, basically all those things. So, you know, it was a pretty good fit for what they were looking for. And it was because we wanted, uh, you know, to, to 
have a knowledge base and influence in that area to bring in more uh, information on how and why to use prescribed fire to manage for game species. Uh, the same is true for quail. I mean, it, you know, they, like I was saying earlier, if you don't have fire, you often do not have quail. But if you add fire, you often get them. So uh, we have plenty of examples within Florida of places where quail populations are thriving on public and private land. And uh, that, I think that's, you know, it can be ascribed largely to the really aggressive fire program. Uh, I work closely with Tall Timbers Research Station. They do a ton of quail research, but they also have a bunch of scientists that are working specifically on what, you know, fire effects and, and uh, trying to work on programs to help people implement fire. They have a fire team that goes around and helps burning. I mean, the, you know, we just have all these initiatives like that. I released a, a prescribed fire training. Uh, it doesn't give you a certification, but it gives you a lot of knowledge. And it's a free training that I put online so people can take that on their own time whenever they get ready, trying to increase knowledge and, and uh, understanding of that practice. And, it, you know, it's a culture that has been maintained in Florida and, and uh, you know, some, some parts of Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi as well. But really, most of Florida that has been retained. Uh, you know, this culture that, that understands that fire is important. And I think you're seeing that snowball where we're just getting more and more and more, uh, you know, uh, or agreement that that's the way we need to go and resources to put into it, knowledge gain, all of this snowballing, uh, you know, into efforts to increase burning. And I think it, it's really been working. And that's one question that I had is for private landowners, um, people who have 20, 40, 80 acres of land, are there individuals that they can, or, or groups that they can reach out to to say, hey, you know, I don't have the resources personally, but can you come help um, burn this piece of property and do it in a on a, on a uh, in a timeline that's uh, lines up with my schedule? And mm-hmm. and uh, is there any way that we can get that taken care of? Yeah, so there there are a variety of opportunities for landowners in our state. It's probably one of the best on that front as well. Uh, I feel like I'm just uh, tooting the, the Florida horn right here, but it really is true, especially around fire and turkeys. Uh, and, but, so there are a bunch of. I was going to say before, before you begin, just can can uh, can we just get a a uh, let's go Gators uh, chant there for Walt. <laughs> yeah, I saw the uh the Georgia sign back there. Yeah, I'm gonna let that go. Yeah. <laughs> Probably should. <laughs> Let's go Gators. Yeah, so uh the in terms of resources for landowners, there are we have pretty active prescribed burn associations in the state. So those, those are really great because it's a collection of landowners who share resources and help each other burn. That is a phenomenal resource for people, and you probably have one close to you wherever you're at. 
because that's a bunch of folks that just want to get some burning done on their land. Some of them have small properties, some have big properties. Sometimes they can leverage grant funding to get additional equipment. You know, there's lots of opportunity. You also can get some experience with people that are more experienced with it. Uh, so that's a really great opportunity. We also, well, first of all, uh, you know, if you're interested in that, go and get training. Our forestry commission puts on training uh, periodically around the state, and you can you can do that. And actually, Florida, because it's kind of been the the uh, the poster child for for what that training should look like. The Florida training is actually reciprocal, I believe, to all other all of the other states. Wow. which is pretty cool because that's not the case in, with the training in other states. So in other words, we could, if you get Florida certified, you could use that certification in any other state. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's all of them. Uh, so, you know, get that training that's available. We also have uh, burn days like burn trainings that are available uh, from time to time from different organizations so where you can go out and get some experience on burning. There are also some crews. Uh, I think Tall Timbers has one. And then uh, the Forestry Commission in the state uh, does some burning for private landowners. And then there are quite a few uh, consulting foresters or, or uh, biologists that can help with burning. So there's lots of opportunities depending on how you want to go about it uh, to to uh, take advantage of you know one of these or- these organizations or training or whatever to get burning done. Whether you want to hire people to do it or do it with people that are more knowledgeable or just you know become knowledgeable and do it yourself. I need to tell people about that because I've got a couple landowners who would really benefit from that. Yeah. Well, I, I always feel like I'm just uh, beating that drum constantly, but it, it's so important, especially if you're interested in game species in this state. Like, it, fire is almost certainly going to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, I just talk about it all the time. A lot of my research is on how fire, you know, uh, affects habitat quality and productivity of these species. And it's generally going to be positive. It's interesting because what you're saying correlates between, and I call it the redneck science, right? We have the formal science of the redneck, the redneck science, right? And when when I started, I've always noticed I'm a I'm a biology fiend, so like you know, painted I see a painted bunting and I recognize how relatively mm-hmm. rare that is right now, and um, you know, I, I notice things even though I wasn't a diehard turkey hunter. If I saw one, I was always mesmerized by it, and. I never really saw that many turkeys in this area. I'm not saying they weren't here. I just didn't see them very often. Starting in about 2020, you started seeing this very aggressive burn rate really start to occur in this area. Uh, huge swaths of very good thorough burns. I'm guessing thorough burns. They look like they're thorough burns. Um, but it happened. It happens every year. And Dude, I I go through some of these places now and, you know, it's not every day, but I counted 14 turkeys on the side of the road the other day. And it, that was, you know, 30 minutes of driving through through public lands at, at you know, yeah. 60 something. Can you send me a pan? I can. I can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, but it's I can't I can't help but just 
immediately in the redneck science of things say, okay, every year they've been burning more and more of, of, of these WMAs, and every season I'm seeing more and more of these birds that cannot mm-hmm. just be happenstance. And so that, yeah. that sounds like that those two things that that that, ob, that observable data from the hunters is aligning with what you're seeing, and I think that's a really encouraging thing. And I know that um, we have a small tribe that we call in, in our Patreon group. We call it the the, the digital deer camp um, <laughs> because they won't allow me to call it digital turkey camp. Um, <laughs> but they were all talking about how happy they are to start seeing some of these areas burned, and I yeah. think that's an area that we're going to funnel some advocacy for the podcast. Is like I don't know what kind of advocacy is needed i don't know if they need people writing in and saying hey my wma is thick and overgrown i don't know what that looks like but we're going to find out and i think we're going to put some effort into that because you know everything i hear you talk about is is production increasing right reducing the predation increasing the habitat and regardless of what issues we face right here in florida in a very personable way fire got introduced to an area that probably needed it really badly and all mm-hmm. of a sudden we have more turkeys so i'm sure there's other things yeah. that we can work on but at least there's a direct correlation on something we can yeah. do with an immediate impact one that yeah and like i said earlier one of the things i don't think is necessarily intuitive to people is when you're resetting that succession essentially you're restarting the vegetation and that early structure you know, I'm talking about three months after fire, that's poult rearing cover. Mm-hmm. A year after fire in a lot of Florida, it depends on what the productivity is like the soil, but a year after fire or up to two years after fire, that might be where the nesting cover is. So, but then basically it moves into something that's not usable for turkeys after that. So if you don't have frequent fire, you lose that productivity and it's not strictly because of predators or of food or of exposure to temperature, you're accomplishing all of those things at the same time. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, there's no question that that is the way to increase productivity is to provide places to nest and brood uh, that are really high quality cover. And you are addressing all of the limiting factors simultaneously, whether, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. And I don't think people understand that, you know, we, we want to do a practice, you know, and, you know, control predators or, or feed, or, you know, we do things like that and it's addressing one aspect, but when you do something like burning and you're affecting habitat, you're addressing all of the aspects at the same time. And that, that's, that is why you see that productivity. Another thing I wanted to bring up is another win for Florida we have one of the uh, longest standing super funds from the National Wild Turkey Foundation. And uh, there's a lot of money that comes through that program that gets directed straight to huntable lands uh, for habitat restoration or improvement for turkeys. And a lot of money goes into that every single year. Wow. So you're, you're probably seeing some of that because it's applied in different parts of the state. And it, you know, changes from year to year. They move to new places to try to improve turkey habitat. And uh, this state is lucky. We have quite a, you know, uh, we do well with the super fund. And that those funds go into uh, a lot of the time getting places back into a burnable condition. And we start burning, to, you know, and, and then see that turkey productivity 
uh, you know, nose up when we do that. That's awesome. That's, a lot that's of cool really things awesome. going into it. So, so kind of talking about some of the threats, something I've never heard discussed, and maybe this is something we just don't have the data on. Um, but on your podcast, you have talked about how reptiles are a huge nest uh, nest predator, uh, as well as for when the poults are really small. Um, mm-hmm. When I think reptiles, I think South Florida and big red, <laughs> big big red flags um, are invasive species in South Florida. Having a, I mean, I guess you've already kind of said no because we're doing pretty good in the state. But is that a concern for for you right now? Um, I, th- I certainly think it could be. Uh, I have never seen any data on it, so I, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to tell you one way or another because I, I don't have the data to tell you, but. Uh, if you have a, a bunch of invasive lizards or, or something that eats turkeys, I could see that being something to, to worry about and look at, but I have not seen any data to suggest that's a problem or not. Uh, the, you know, the, based on the, uh, the broader data, it doesn't seem to be a problem, but uh, yeah, it's a good question. We have thought about that some with, especially some of the, the larger lizard species. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't have any data to, to suggest. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay. Daniel, I'm coming dominating. Do you have another question? Well, he brought up the difference, I guess, between uh, Osceola's and Eastern's. And this is the question that I get every year in the region that I hunt. Is my turkey an Osceola <laughs> turkey? Because I'm in North Florida. And he's got black wings, and he looks like an Osceola turkey. But they tell me that I'm, I'm in a in a region that doesn't have Osceola turkeys. So, so doctor, can, can you settle this debate for us? <laughs> what? Uh, so, what's? Can you ask me the question? Is is my turkey? Yeah, is 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 the turkey that that has the broken bands in North Florida? Is is he considered an Osceola? That's a good question. I don't know that I can settle that debate, but you know the primary differences in the two subspecies are morphological, like that. And you know, I would say if it's sharing the characteristics that uh, of an Osceola, then call it an Osceola. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that. Call, call it as you see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reality of it is there's so much gene flow between the subspecies mm-hmm. uh you know there's 
not real clear genetic indicators. We have to go on morpho morphology and there, there's not an imaginary line. You know, it, we, we have to draw the line somewhere, but uh, the, real, the reality is it's probably fuzzier than that. And, uh, you know, who am I to tell you that uh, your turkey isn't an Osceola? If you want it to be, then I want you to be proud of your turkey. So if that's what you need, then, then please uh, call it an Osceola. Good. I, I needed to hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people all the time, the, my, my this is how I judge Osceolas versus Easterns. Um, I just asked Shane Simpson. I was I shot a bird a couple of years back, and Shane was at the house, and uh, I pull the bird out, and I show it to him, and he goes, where did you shoot that? And I was like, doesn't matter. What do you think it is? And he picks it up, and he goes, it's a small, it's a small bird. It, he looks at the wings. He goes, "That's an Osceola. Where did you shoot that?" I said, "Right, right, right down the way. You know, you, yeah. you and I were hunting the same spot." And he he told me that there was a study. And I don't know if this is true. If he was just blowing smoke up my butt, either which way it wouldn't matter. It was Shane Simpson. Um, but he was telling me that there was a study that he read way back in the day that when turkeys were extirpated and they reintroduced turkeys to North Florida, that the areas that that turkeys were extirpated from. Uh, were largely the pine flats that they mm -hmm. were not overhunted down in the swamps. And at mm -hmm. one point, the Osceola map went up into South Georgia. It went all the way up like to the tip of South Carolina and it drew kind of around its way over to Mobile and it was down. That was the Osceola. And mm -hmm. so what he, what the, the paper that he said, and I've never found it. Um, maybe it's in that book, but I love it. I don't know. But, um, he basically said, if you think about it logically, when they reintroduce those, they reintroduce them to where there aren't turkeys. And if you're bringing Easterns in, then that's what you drop in that area. Because I have killed birds uh, in this bottom. I've killed four birds in this bottom. The average weight is paltry. You go a mile up into the pines <laughs> and you're getting into 17, 18, 19 pound birds and they don't have the wings and their feet look different and they act a little different. I mean, they sound a little different. And so... Um, my, my measuring stick is I just text Shane and say, Hey man, tell me what this is. And I just run with it. And if anybody wants yeah. to argue with me, you can argue with Shane Simpson. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can take the point of view as every turkey is a trophy. So I don't care which one it is personally. <laughs> I can argue with you over which one it is. Uh, yeah. I haven't, I, I've, uh, talked a lot with a bunch of people about restocking and, how that can really kind of muddy relationships and, and stuff like that. Uh, but I hadn't heard about that particular uh, study. Well, Daniel, so my thinking on this is we've kept him for, for a bit of a minute here and the fella is joining us. I mean, he, he could be out there hobnobbing with the, with the finest of, of the fine uh, <laughs> individuals at NWTF. So we've got a couple questions left. Why don't you pick one? I'll pick one. We'll do a brief answer. And then I've got a, a little rapid fire at the end of our little uh, note there that I just, I, I assembled that I just, I feel like we just have to ask, ask him. So what's your final question, Daniel? One of my final questions would be when you're, if you're lucky and if you're a good turkey hunter like Walt um, and you're calling on, in all these birds and, and you have two or three, four gobblers coming in and one's blowed up and strutting and the other one's looking. Do you take the shot at the looker or do you take the shot at the strutter? And is there science behind that that's going to, you know, sway? Which, which bird to pick? 
if you have, you know, if, if you're as blessed as, as Walt is, some of us, you know, we just, we're lucky to see Jake. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, uh, in terms of my choice, I'm usually taking the one that provides me the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's the long beard. So, uh, there. So to answer your question from the, the data, side of things i have heard a couple of scientists talk about this uh based on on data that they've collected and and uh, some publications from various areas and i have heard people suggest uh that you should essentially shoot the satellite one instead of the dominant tom kind of deal um i think that that is a reasonable approach uh, again, I'm going to, I'm going to take the opportunity and the, the reason that they are saying that, I think that, that there's data being collected on this kind of thing. I, I just don't think that we've really well ironed it out, but, uh, in a species like turkeys that have a really, uh, elaborate mating system, a lot of that is related to female selection for that trait. And we have a bunch of species of birds that do that. Not in, uh, some of them in Florida, but we all over the world. And we have some good data from some systems that that is an indicator of the male's fitness. And the idea being, okay, if we shot the dominant one, he may have been more fit and then that could lead to some problems. But I think that uh, that is far from measured. And, and determined. I, I think that is there's there is some biology you can invoke there to to think about it. But you know, I, I would I would uh, say that people should take their opportunity and and uh, you know worry less about that. And especially if if the hens have already been bred and are incubating, like why why couldn't you take yeah. out that dominant bird? Well, even, you know, in that case, that, that's another part of the same same sort of hypothesis that, you know, the, the dominant bird or disrupting them early or taking that dominant bird could, some, could lead to fitness problems in the population. And I just don't think that we have data to, to uh, support that currently. Uh, not not strong experimental data, and uh, we do have a couple of instances where we've moved things around in an experimental framework and have not have not seen a, an effect yet. So uh, I'm not that concerned about that personally. Although there are some biological reasons to that you could uh, invoke to to support that that could be a problem. Sure. I'm a, I'm a man of science, and my two cents of this is I believe in evolution. I believe of selective harvest, and I'm shooting the looker because I want the dumb one that's willing to come in and puff up to do all the breeding and just pass that gene. <laughs> I don't I, the smart yeah. bird that thinks twice about to, it. He's the one that hangs up and just taunts you in the swamp. So yeah. you're uh, naturally we, trying to select. The <laughs> yeah, we need we need, we need a uh, a shirt that, that says something like "Let the dumb ones live" or something yeah. like that. You Walter know. selection. <laughs> Yeah, right. I, I'm a big fan of opportunity, and, yeah. and uh, you know, if you get an opportunity, then <laughs> you know, and you're within your uh, legal right to do so, then you should take your opportunity. 
So final question, then we'll do the rapid fire and we'll let you, let you get back to your fun. But, um, there's a there's the spring brings about activism it brings about this angst the season deer season's behind us right we're we're, we 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 talk a good game about needing some rest but everybody's upset about the fact that a season one more season's gone we're waiting on another season and in our tribe we keep hearing you know like hey i think we need more access to this area hey i think we need more And and you see this 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 longing to become more engaged. And that's something I want to cultivate in that group. Um, and I want to make it a year round effort. And so my question for you is as a turkey hunter, and it sounds like as an outdoorsman as a whole, there's some things that we could do, but what can the average Florida sportsman do to help you to help turkeys, to help the, ha- the habitat? Like what should we be doing to support y'all? Well, that's a great, great question. I, I guess the, there, there's support, in various different ways. One, I love turkey hunting, so uh, you know, pins. I'll uh, I'll take any bites here. <laughs> More pins. Uh, no, uh, that's a great question. I think you know there's several things that folks can do. One, buy a hunting license. That that is, we have a an act called the Pittman Robertson Act, and funding for a lot of conservation efforts including uh, for turkeys is, you know, through an excise tax on, on sporting goods and uh, hunting license sales. And that's important. So you're contributing if you're doing that. Um, there, there are other ways to contribute funding. Like I have uh, a, an account set up essentially that if people want to donate to wild turkey research in Florida, they can do so. It goes right into it. I don't make anything off of it. It just gives me more work to do, honestly, uh, because I'm able to go tag more turkeys and do that kind of thing. Uh, there's, you know, the, the state agency has a similar type of deal where they could do that. Uh, help us collect data. You know, send in the, uh, the uh, poult-to-hen poult ratio stuff. You know, participate in... Uh, those kinds of efforts participate in your your uh, you know town hall meetings and give feedback. All those kinds of things are all you know if you do them constructively can be very helpful in uh, you know helping us to manage the resource. And then you know uh, being a steward of the resource, like you know try to uh, what if you have property that you can make improvements do that i actually am an extension specialist for the university i help people i give information go to people's properties sometimes uh you know help people try to make decisions i put on trainings all the time to do that uh so you know try to make land management decisions that improve the resource productivity of the resource uh so those are those are all great ways, you know, that people can contribute in a variety of different ways, depending on what your situation is. Uh, you know, there are ways that you can give back. And that's that's really what I'm here doing. I'm trying to, you know, I grew up loving this resource and I got so obsessed with it that I have I went to college for a long time so that then people would pay me to then study it and give you information on it. So uh you know, that, that all stems from my passion and I'm just trying to give back just like, just like everybody else. 
That's awesome, go listen man. to our podcast and we'll give you lots of information on how to, you know, how wild turkey biology works and management and, and all that stuff. So we're going to, we're going to have to talk more about that fund when we, when we end this podcast, let's have a conversation about that. Cause I, I've got some ideas right off the jump, but we're going to do this. This was not part of it, but we're going to squeeze it in, but give us two more minutes of your time. Uh, Daniel, yeah. I put, I put together some rapid fire. We might tweak these as we do the episode. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to grab one. We're going to hurl it his way. When he answers, you grab the next and we'll just keep doing, going down the list. You ready? No thinking, gut answers only. Okay, um, here we go. Letter TSS. What's in your gun? Oh, lead. Box collar, trumpet. Box call. Decoy or no decoy? No decoy. Bearded hen or triple bearded tom? Triple bearded tom. <laughs> Hooks or spurs? I'm sorry, beard or spurs. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, wait a minute. <laughs> I would probably say hooks. Uh, I'll answer hooks either way. <laughs> yeah, hooks either way, okay. Uh, turkey vest or no vest? Vest. Favorite locator call? Owl. Favorite subspecies? Favorite subspecies? Might have to go with Osceola. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite state? Florida, of course. Say it. Go Gators. <laughs> Go Gators. I did grow up in Alabama, so. I can hear it. <laughs> Favorite podcast. Oh, man. I'm going to have to go with Wild Turkey Science Guy. Yeah, that's why I did that on purpose. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and lastly, uh, your favorite camo pattern. Ooh. Bottom on hardwood. God, there was only. Oh, original or new? Original. There we go. He's one of us, people. It's settled. It's done. <laughs> Whatever he says, take it to the bank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Listen, dude, um, I've got pins. Um, I got plenty of them. I got places to hunt. I've got a, uh, a very messy bed over here that, that's got a big Georgia G across the top of it, and I'll probably have even more of that here should you decide you yeah. want to come hunt turkeys. Um but, uh, dude, seriously, um, I can't thank you enough for taking time at your evening, especially given the fact you're sitting in your car. It looks like in the rain uh, talking yeah. to us, but this has been a blast <laughs> and I, I can, I can see, I can see maybe future episodes in the, in, in the, you know, coming down the pipe of different topics we could have punched in further and maybe just a, sure. some form of annual update for things kind of building on these dialogues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks guys for having me. It's been really fun and, uh, it kept me from having to walk, walk across through here in the rain. So that was good. But, uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to come back and, you know, talk to you about whatever and, uh, love to come on and, you know, give updates on the research that we have going on in the state. I think, you know, the, the, uh, people really can gain some value from, from hearing near real time, stuff about what's going on so that's what we're here for and, and i'm happy to do that that's awesome man well i could not be happier to have had you as our first guest so uh enjoy your time um enjoy your time up there spend way too much money drink way too much uh beverages <laughs> and share, share stories yeah yeah i'm gonna try to do all those things so. <laughs> <laughs>